Hi there, I'm Christopher Brick, and welcome to episode one of Intervals. So, when you're a historian and people learn this important biographical detail about you, uh, I have found in my own professional life it's not uncommon to be asked a question so often it's become almost predictable. So, what do you think about guns, germs, and steel? It's true. Students ask about it. Dad book enthusiasts ask about it. And in a 2019 interview with The Guardian, Malcolm Gladwell called it the book that he considered the most underrated out there, even though it also won a Pulitzer for nonfiction. So Gladwell paired these flattering comments as well with a revealing critique of the historical humanities, noting somewhat infamously that, quote, the problem, or at least the limitation, with history is that it's written by historians. So along comes someone who knows a lot about geology and geography, and history looks completely different. Unquote. Well, this episode is anchored by a terrific young historian, Josh Irvin, and we at the Intervals Pod feel strongly the content is better for it. Josh is a third-year doctoral student at George Washington University pursuing his Ph.D. in Native American history with David Silverman. Having recently passed his comprehensive exams, we are getting Josh right at that moment in a young historian's life when you've just spent a year reading everything. You're more well-read than you ever will be for the rest of your life. And so you're in a position to draw upon an extensive array of intellectual resources to bring us into this space and bring us into the story being told. And Josh certainly does that. His dissertation research addresses questions pertaining to Native sovereignty in the late 18th and early 19th century as filtered through the historical experience of the Grand River Iroquois community. He's done research in the past on the Tuscarora Nation and their dispossession in the post-revolution period. Josh currently lives with his partner, Michaela, and their 14-month-old son, Aiden. Uh, Carrie and Yokota will be joining me afterward for the Q&A, so be sure to stick around for a fantastic discussion. And with that, I give you Josh Irvin with A Haunted Land, Epidemics, Indians, and the Contagion of Colonialism in North America, Pre-Contact to 1621. Roughly a year ago, life around the world ground to a halt when COVID-19 became the first significant pandemic in about a century. People around the world with little to no immunity found themselves at the mercy of pathogens they could not see, did not understand and could do little to resist. While pandemics are anomalies today, in the long durée of history they are more common, yet no less devastating. Disease has a long history in North and South America. Indigenous peoples across both continents were no strangers to disease when Europeans arrived at the tail end of the 15th century. However, the newcomers brought diseases unlike anything natives had ever experienced, and on a scale they could hardly imagine. What I want to explore today is the role disease played in the pre-contact in colonial Americas. Disease paved the way for colonization, and while Europeans might not have understood their role in spreading these pathogens, they certainly took advantage of the devastation their diseases wrought. Native life changed as well as Indians attempted to adapt to both the empires on their doorstep and the diseases which had already infiltrated their homes. North America is a haunted land. In the story of contact, 
It's often told as one of exchange, trade, warfare, and a pageantry of colonial pretensions. However, it was set against a land of skulls, sun-bleached bones, and carrion fowl. When English Puritans, better known as pilgrims, landed off the coast of the Massachusetts in 1620, the Indians they met were survivors. Tisquantum, often remembered as Squanto, was an emissary from the local Wampanoag tribes and served as a liaison for the new European arrivals. He was a former captive who had been kidnapped from his home among the Patuxent Indians by the explorer Thomas Hunt in 1614. Tisquantum had lived in England for nearly five years before escaping back to his homeland in 1620, but when he returned, he found that everyone he knew was dead, killed by an epidemic that swept the East Coast while he had been in England. Historian David Silverman describes the once thronging, now empty villages with undergrowth creeping into their recesses, skeletal remains lying above ground right where death occurred, to the people who had survived the epidemic and lived constantly with the memories of loved ones they had lost. The place probably was haunted. Plymouth resident Thomas Morton likewise described the scene as a newfound Golgotha in reference to the execution and burial site where the Romans killed Jesus Christ. In the midst of this Golgotha, there were survivors, thousands of them, who had fled to the surrounding areas to escape the disease. But these survivors were forever scarred and refused to speak of the event. Terrified of their Narragansett neighbors, who constantly eyed their disease-weakened villages for captives and plunder, when Tisquantum and the Sajam Massasoit went to the newcomers to form an alliance, they did so on behalf of these people, who were haunted not only by disease, but also by the memories that they had of it. The Wampanoags were one of many people struck by new maladies and forced to reorient their entire lives to limit the damage diseases could do. This meant making alliances, putting distance between themselves and sources of disease, and remaining alert for any signs of a new infection. Indigenous peoples were no stranger to illness prior to Europeans' arrival. According to osteologic data reviewed by Deborah Martin and Alan Goodman, diseases like tuberculosis, giardia, hepatitis, herpes, pertussis, and a host of others were already present in the Western Hemisphere. Prior to European arrival, Native communities were far from isolated. Peoples in the pre-contact Americas had regular contact with their neighbors, who often had contact with their neighbors, and so on and so forth. This created slow but clearly connected networks of trade, communication, and warfare. While there is little evidence to suggest that pre-contact diseases caused any significant collapse among Native communities prior to 1492, High-density population centers like the cities of Cahokia, Chaco Canyon, and Tenochtitlan were far from safe from outbreaks. Goodman and Armilagos' review of bone densities and structures of remains from Mississippian mounds show that places like Cahokia suffered from nutritional deficits once they switched to maize-centered agriculture. While maize enabled these communities to experience sharp population booms, it also led to a decline in nutrition, which gave disease a better chance to spread. In the case of Cahokia, this meant tuberculosis and trepanomatosis, a disease related to syphilis, and they spread in these close-contact, high-population conditions. However, disease of this sort fits a scale. Cities with high populations were far more common in Europe prior to contact. By comparison, Cahokia's estimated population reached a height of over 10,000 in 1200 CE. At that same time, Paris was home to over 200,000. By 1500, long after Cahokia's prime, the Aztec city of Tenochtitlan housed over 200 people. So demographically, Europeans had the numbers. However, native populations remained significant. A point of contention here. These population numbers do not accurately reflect the situation in North America, 
at contact. Well into the 17th century, Europeans lived in Americas at native behest. They were a small portion of the population of the continents, with natives making up the lion's share, even addled by disease. While the Spanish succeeded in depopulating most of Central and South America, they still remained a tiny colony of a few thousand against the Sea of Natives. Roanoke Colony was destroyed, or vanished as some might say, because its residents failed to fit into native frameworks. New France was surrounded by natives on all sides, and constantly under threat of isolation or destruction if it did not play its part in the native world. This middle ground, described by Richard White and later by Michael Whitkin, created an area of an indigenous power. To be sure, Europeans eventually gained the upper hand in terms of their demographics, their numbers, and their power. But this was also largely due to disease depopulating large numbers of natives, which otherwise would have had the opportunity to resist Europeans and therefore colonization. From its outset, disease then was a threat to indigenous sovereignty. Regarding disease as well, proximity to animals also made a difference in population centers. Most natives had not domesticated any animals aside from dogs, turkeys, or occasionally alpacas meaning zoonotic diseases like influenza, smallpox, and bubonic plague uh, were far more frequent among European arrivals than natives. The plague is often attributed to a loss of nearly one-third of Europe's total population in particular, though Europeans who survived enjoyed enhanced immunity to the disease and were able to pass it on to their children. Natives did not have this immunological advantage. So while natives were no strangers to the disease, the kinds of disease, and the rapidity with which they spread when imported from Europe made Native America almost completely unprepared for this threat. While the death toll in Europe was staggering, it pales in comparison to the devastation wrought by old world diseases on New World shores. Andres Resendez has argued that at initial contact, particularly with the Spanish, if left to their own devices, the native peoples of the Caribbean would have limited their exposure to illness, coping like many other human populations before and after them. They were not left alone, however and persistent contact with Europeans through trade, warfare, and enslavement meant colonialism ensured a productive breeding ground for pathogens and an unprecedented health crisis for natives. The story of disease after European contact is tragic and by now well known. High-end estimates place indigenous population in the Western Hemisphere at around 50 million prior to contact. By 1900, that number had dropped to around 4 million, and of those, 600,000 lived in the United States. This represents a decline of over 90% of the native population over the course of around 400 years. While not all of this can be attributed to the disease, epidemics were certainly the quickest and most efficient killers. In 1976, Alfred Crosby dubbed these events virgin soil epidemics, and the name has since stuck. In his words, virgin soil epidemics are those in which the populations at risk have had no previous contact with the diseases that strike them, and are therefore immunologically almost defenseless. Natives' lack of immunity and relatively low resistance to the new pathogens meant entire villages could fall ill at the same time, leaving few, if any, to care for the sick. The social and cultural implications of mass illness are highlighted in David Jones' piece, Revisiting Crosby's Thesis. Jones argues, I think successfully, that the epidemics among American Indians, despite their unusual severity, were caused by the same forces of poverty, social stress, and environmental vulnerability that cause epidemics in all other times and places. Jones goes on to state that a host of factors contributed to native mortality, but he also concludes that the relative lack of native immunity contributed to these numbers. The loss of human life was devastating to native communities, but that loss went far deeper than simply mourning the dead. It shook the very fabric of native communities touched by disease. 
Native culture operated and still operates on terms of kinship that had clear obligations and duties for every member of the community. There were warriors to fight, women to tend land and agriculture, clan matrons who would advise and guide tribal leadership, shamans, spiritual leaders, and medicine men who interceded with the supernatural world, and hereditary chiefs who led their communities and represented a rough consensus opinion of the tribe. Any death set off ripples throughout this network of relationships, often along familial or clan lines, and left disruptive gaps that interrupted everyday life. One death was hard enough for natives to endure, but the onset of virgin soil epidemics meant entire tribal kinship networks could be ripped apart within the space of a month. As James Merrill put it, generations of collected wisdom could vanish in a matter of days if large numbers of old people succumbed to illness. Unfortunately, we have been able to watch this process unfold in real time as COVID-19 has disproportionately affected indigenous communities, particularly elders who are primary knowledge holders. In October 2020, the Washington Post reported that the Iwalapiti, an Amazonian tribe, lost one of three people who still knew their traditional language. The other two, it reported, are well into their 70s, placing them at increased risk of infection and death. With this backdrop, Contact set in motion a series of events that would come to define life on two continents. Disease had come and showed no signs of leaving. In response, Europeans, natives, and eventually enslaved Africans applied a variety of cures trying to stem the tide of each epidemic. The most common thread between these groups' understandings of disease and health is that none of them knew exactly why disease happened or how to stop it. To some degree, each, thought of, each sought a spiritual explanation. Europeans viewed disease in part as a punishment from God sent to strike the unholy. The Plymouth colonist Thomas Morton attributed the epidemic among the Wampanoags to the wrath of God, proclaiming, The hand of God fell heavily upon them. The place is made so much the more fit for an English nation to inhabit in, and erected it temples to the glory of God. Here we see an assault uh, both from disease on native culture and native sovereignty by way of the English. French and Spanish Catholic priests explained disease as the secret but ever-adorable judgments of God. When natives and non-Christian Africans contracted these pathogens while Europeans enjoyed immunity, they saw it as the result of their faith, not of differential immunities. Enslaved Africans turned towards rituals and practices brought with them across the Atlantic, eventually blended with Christianity appropriated from their captors. Natives likewise tried to explain their suffering in spiritual terms. They used dances, rituals, objects like copper with spiritual power, and other means to commune with spirits to end their suffering, and often depending on appealing to the right spirit to fix what was wrong. While few, if any, accounts remain of the 1616-1619 epidemic among the Wampanoags, they may have viewed the disease as sent from an angered spirit, Kitan, usually associated with crops, the sun, and good weather. David Silverman states that the source of the illness mattered greatly to the Wampanoags, Maladies from other sources were treatable, he writes, as when Chibi had sent the affliction for some conceived anger against them. However, if Ketan was the cause, the disease might very well be incurable. Paul Kelton's article on southeastern natives' response to disease shows a similar process in which the Cherokees explained smallpox as an affliction from an evil spirit. While each of these groups developed systems to react to disease in their own ways of understanding its cause, without germ theory or an understanding of epidemiology, Europeans, natives, and Africans often chase an elusive killer with treatments which at best could make a patient comfortable, or at worst, speed their death. Of all three groups, European medicine proved the most deadly. Perhaps one of the best glimpses into European practices during colonization comes from J.R. McNeil's work, Mosquito Empires. 
While Europeans had been practicing quarantine since the days of the bubonic plague, if containment failed, their reactions often did more harm than good for the victims. Based mainly on Galen's theories from the second century, Europeans who practiced medicine saw illness as an imbalance of fluids or humors. For instance, fevers, they believed, resulted from an excess of blood which could be remedied through bleeding the patient or leeching, making the patient more of a victim depending on your relation to them. Emetics, diuretics, and a healthy application of mercury joined the bleeding in search of a cure. Thomas Jefferson once, once wrote of the practice, the patient, treated on the fashionable theory, sometimes gets well in spite of the medicine. Europeans practice preventative medicine to a certain degree. McNeil states, rigorous hygiene could check dysentery and typhus, inoculation usually worked against smallpox, and citrus proved highly effective against scurvy. However, these practices did not find their way into the mainstream until the 1700s, meaning those who suffered from them prior to this often had to undergo these torturous treatments or otherwise drown their symptoms in alcohol or opium, which honestly was preferable to uh, some of the Galenic cures. Native and African cures often proved no more effective, but often focused on mitigating painful symptoms if nothing else. Enslaved Africans brought with them cures and knowledge of herbs, combined with appeals to the spiritual world to fight disease. While effective against wounds and sores, these herbs and prayers did little to stem the tide of disease, particularly viruses like yellow fever. Native cures fell into a similar category. Wounds, childbirth, and familiar ailments and infections could be cured by a host of herbal and natural substances known to Indian healers. For instance, when French explorer Jacques Cartier ventured up the St. Lawrence River in 1536, a native cure saved many of his sailors from scurvy. Natives identified the cure from a tree of life, better known today as Arba Vitae, which you can find at your local home improvement store or in your neighbor's landscaping. A study in 2009 confirmed that high quantities of vitamin C and arginine in Arborvitae provided a ready cure for scurvy, though the mixture is also potentially toxic. However, native practices like sweat lodges and rituals for bodily purification might have purged other ailments, though they often did little for old world epidemics and often exacerbated their symptoms. The practices that comprised what we might call an early form of public health were abysmal. Quarantine was the preventative measure of choice for natives and Europeans. Having survived the Black Death through the condoning off of infected communities, Europeans understood how to at least limit the spread of disease. However, quarantine at this time could only be practiced when a given population showed symptoms. In many cases, smallpox for example, infected people often do not present any symptoms in the early stages of or during recovery. They might still be contagious during those times as well. Therefore, Europeans might unknowingly carry viral or bacterial hitchhikers on their belongings or person when they entered native communities. Natives, for their part, also practiced a form of quarantine. While shamans, healers, and the community at large often tried to help the sick, they would flee an area for the duration of an outbreak if too many fell ill at once. This is largely believed to be how the Wampanoags partially survived the epidemic of 1616 to 1619. However, this method was imperfect as well, for the same reasons. With a disease like smallpox, it's hard to know who has the disease and who doesn't. So when natives would flee to the hills, they might be bringing the disease with them as they went. Quarantine, however, was not an option for enslaved Africans, save for some Cimarron communities in the Caribbean and those who fled to live with natives such as the Seminoles. Chattel slavery meant that enslaved Africans had little ability to distance themselves from contagions for any meaningful space of time, and often suffered with little recourse. However, generations of proximity to Europeans meant that enslaved Africans, and those in West Africa itself, 
had developed a degree of resistance to disease as did people in Europe because their resistances developed at the same time. This, however, made them more attractive to Europeans as a labor source to replace natives who continually died from these foreign ailments. Amid the chaos and increasing mortality rates, European colonialism gained a foothold in the Western Hemisphere. With nearby natives suffering from disease and believing at the will of God, Europeans capitalized on the situation. The most famous work on this subject, or infamous depending on your present company, is Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, which has become a classroom staple across the country. The book developed significant controversy that seems to grow by the day. To be sure, Diamond's work is reductionist, oversimplified, runs roughshod over historical context, and relates nearly everything back to geography as the root of all fate. However, Diamond does have a point. His assertions that disease paved the way for colonization are largely correct, but not for the reasons that he argues. You see, geographic determinism had less to do with it than European opportunism. What Diamond misses is that Europeans were aware of what was going on. They were able to watch disease unfold and watch natives die in the process. The newcomers became, in the words of John Murren, beneficiaries of disaster. Indeed, Murren states that contemporary intellectuals understood what was going on. They understood the cost of their colonies and called it one of the greatest moral monstrosities of all time. However, moral outrage could not undo the damage, and colonization not only continued, but intensified. Disease vacated lands, and per European definitions of land ownership, land needed to be improved to be considered owned. Therefore, if the land was not improved or occupied, empires might claim it. This has most popularly been uh, noticed under the British policy of Terra Nullius. And now while natives resisted these processes with physical violence, diplomacy, or by trying to acculturate to meet white European standards for civility, disease had already ruined their case in the eyes of Europeans. To this day, natives still proclaim that they have survived these diseases. They still keep their lands. And still those empires and their successors refuse to listen. Enslavement and warfare present the clearest indications of Europeans' intent to capitalize on disease and its effects. Epidemics and their resulting death tolls expedited captivity and slavery in ways never before seen in the Western Hemisphere. Natives practiced captive-taking long before Europeans arrived, as did societies across the globe. Whether captives were taken to repair gaps in kinship networks, supply a form of labor, or to prove the strength and spiritual favor of tribes' warriors, captives form a central part of indigenous life. Tribes weakened by disease would have had less military strength to resist another war party out for captives, plunder, and glory. Indians, as well as Europeans, had no idea that colonization would continue and eventually cover the continent with settler states. So when they took captives, natives were perpetuating a way of life they had practiced for generations. However, European goods and markets expanded the captive trade to a rate which had never been seen before. Contact altered captivity and captive-taking in several key ways. Rampant disease meant that tribes closer to contact zones, mainly along coast or the interior borders of empires, were subject to ep epidemics and were thus weakened. Europeans and natives alike could take advantage of this to take Indian slaves. For Europeans, particularly in New Spain and Brazil, this meant workers for mines, plantations, and house servants. Enslavement meant proximity to Europeans and therefore disease, particularly among natives enslaved for mine work or on encomiendas for forced labor. For natives in European households, that disease could also be venereal. As Andres Resendez points out, many slaves trafficked to both New Spain and even back to Europe were women and children. 
Resendez explains this trend. He writes, children are more adaptable than, than adults, learn new languages quickly, and they could be trained and molded with greater ease. Women were less threatening than men and could be sexually exploited. When taken captives, natives also focused on taking women and children, but for a few different reasons. In native culture, men would be dishonored if they were taken captive and could regain that honor through a good death, suffering through torture with dignity, or, in other cases, being adopted by the tribe uh, that captured them to requicken a dead fem family member or take their place in that tribe's kinship networks. The latter was far less common. Women and children, however, uh, while initially enduring violence and degradation, normally were adapted in the captor's tribe. Children could adapt easily. Women could marry into the tribe and have more children. As a result of contact, though, both also met European demands for slaves in exchange for metal, firearms, and other tradable goods. The high mortality rate among natives who contracted European diseases also led to the first instances of African slavery in the New World. When indigenous slaves died, there were often fewer and fewer captives to replace them. Europeans, unwilling to give up their luxuries and precious metals, imported labor from Africa and from, other, and from their own streets. Chattel slavery, however, would outpace indentured servitude as land became scarce and profits favored enslaved labor, which required no quit pay or wages and carried no legal protections. Indentured servants proved susceptible to tropical maladies like yellow fever and malaria, diseases to which enslaved Africans had some immunity. In his account of the rise of racialized labor on Barbados, Simon Newman accounts for the shift towards enslaved labor as masters generally sought to extract as much labor as quickly as possible for the smallest outlay of expenses in order to maximize profits. Enslaved Africans who survived their earliest bouts of European disease and the tropical viruses that ran rampant in the Caribbean and North American Southeast were able to pass on their immunities to their children. Those who emerged from the winnowing of hard labor Terrible conditions, constant abuse, and debilitating illness were considered seasoned by European masters, and their value outpaced whiter native labor. By comparison, Indians or indentured servants were more likely to die before making profits, which either offset the cost of, the cost of their purchase, in the case of natives, or the cost of their housing and transport for indentures. Europeans began to see this as inherent resistance to disease, as an example of why Africans were fit for labor, this racial explanation as to why they held slaves. This underpinned ideas about race that developed from late 17th century on. The cold calculus of colonial extraction and production rested to a fair degree on the effects of disease and partially created a system of racially based chattel slavery as a result. Not to oversimplify the issue, as there are far more reasons for the creation of, of racially based chattel slavery. However, disease did play a role in, in reaffirming assumptions that Europeans had made about the Africans they enslaved. However, Europeans weren't the only ones to take advantage of the devastation wrought by disease. While colonization destabilized native communities throughout North and South America, some native peoples concluded the best way to make up for their losses and to prevent future destruction was to expand. Take, for example, the Haudenosaunee's or Six Nations Iroquois, technically five nations until 1722 when they welcomed the Tuscaroras back from the Carolinas. The Haudenosaunee's are united by a series of relationships, rituals, ceremonies, a common language, and a shared culture and government structure. That structure limited violence within the nations and redirected it outwards at their neighbors and enemies. While the Iroquois had some contact with New France and later New Netherland and New England, their contact with Europeans was fairly limited until the end of the 16th and early 17th centuries. 
There were some early infections and epidemics, such as the one observed by Jacques Cartier in 1535 at the village of Stadacona, which was later abandoned, perhaps due to the disease. However, by the early 1600s, epidemics had begun to take their toll. With kinship networks in tatters, Haudenosaunee's began what later were called mourning wars, to take captives to replace their dead, ranging up and down the length of the East Coast. While these raids were often costly for Iroquois war parties, they were more so for their victims. Often facing disease on their own, these, co- these targeted communities and villages often fell apart unless they too were part of larger conglomerate networks, villages, or chiefdoms. These communities were often displaced and would move to just below the Iroquois homelands in what is today New York and Upper Pennsylvania to become props to the Longhouse, to serve as a buffer from European expansion, a ready stream of potential adopt- adoptees to replace losses from disease, and a system of begrudging allies if the case the League was ever threatened. For Haudenosaunee's, their mourning wars emphasized their alliance with one another and strengthened their standing as a regional power. However, for natives outside of the Confederacy, the Iroquois posed a significant threat. Their raids were calculated and proceeded like clockwork on an annual basis. Despite disease, their population remained significant to the point where New France was forced to broker peace treaties and ceasefires between Haudenosaunee's and other tribes around the Great Lakes, often subject to Iroquois captive raiding. A similar process of disease leading to conglomerate native groups taking power through captives unfolded in the southeast with the Catawbas and Creeks, in the southwest with the Utes, and eventually in the Midwest with the Comanches later in the 17th century. Disease, therefore, created a health crisis for which native policy could become expansion and warfare, if not to stop the infection, then to replace the losses it created. Today, as we live through what might compare to a virgin soil epidemic, it is easy to believe what we are experiencing is unprecedented. Adjusting to a modern world to a problem which has existed as long as microbes have been on the face of the earth has been no easy task. As the global death toll climbs, we get a sense of what it may have been like to live on the North American continent on a yearly basis. Disease and death stalked the land and became as much a part of the scenery as the plants, animals, and resources Europeans so desperately sought. Today, as then, Native populations suffer disproportionately. Less access to health care, compromised health due to poverty, and lack of support from white Euro-American states, among other factors, have exacerbated the effects of COVID-19 in Native communities. The pandemic comes at a time when many tribes and peoples were actively reviving traditions and languages long thought lost. The damage the virus has already done is irreversible. Perhaps it is nothing new, but it makes it no less devastating. Our present situation also brings up another question. Were Europeans responsible for epidemic disease and its countless victims in the Western Hemisphere from contact on? I would say yes and no. Europeans had no idea they were bringing diseases with them, and they had no idea natives had no immunity to those diseases. Europeans did not set out to depopulate North and South America by way of disease. They had no idea what a virus or bacterium was to even begin to start to think that way. However, Europeans still bear responsibility for what came after. They knew what disease looked like. They knew, in part, how to slow its spread. They also observed on multiple counts that natives suffered a disproportionate rate. However, their choice was to explain it away as an act of God, to continue to enslave and dispossess natives whose ability to resist was compromised by disease, and then claim that they had extinguished native sovereignty in the process. When natives died at a rate that outpaced European demands, they imported new people, enslaved in a brutal fashion to carry on the work. Today, descendants of those Europeans still bear responsibility for what is unfolding in front of us, to become informed and make better decisions with more advanced knowledge of diseases and its effects. 
COVID-19 has introduced Europeans to a portion of the fear and uncertainty that comes with, from rampant infectious disease that natives experience time and again. It should become a time of reflection, not only on our current public health policies, but also to the past to see the possible damage if those policies fail. We sit in an advantage today, but the stakes are as high as ever. Likewise, we should turn to our underprivileged communities, as they are the ones that, who will suffer disproportionately in the crisis to come. To be brutally honest with our pasts, acknowledge where our responsibility falls, and redress what wrongs we can are our only courses to avoid doing even further damage. If we don't, this land will continue to be haunted, and our own ghosts might join the chorus. And if you thought that was great, you will be amazed at what Josh is able to cite from memory in this Q&A that followed. Carrie and I were blown away, and we hope you will be too. Here it is. Josh Irvin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you, and it's a special day because I'm also thrilled to have with me here the chair of the Marketing and Communications Committee, my friend and our brilliant leader, Carrie Ann Yakota. Carrie Ann Yakota is in the house. Welcome, Madam Chair. Hi. Thank you so much for welcoming me. It's been such a pleasure to work with you, and I am looking forward to embarking on this new podcast adventure. So. Thanks for having me. Me too. Me too. We hope all our listeners um, enjoy and take away as much from this experience. I think I, I'm break. I'm doing a little fourth wall breaking here, if you'll allow me, just to say that even though this is the very first content-oriented episode, really in the series, um, it's actually one of the last ones we're recording. So um, we sort of know where this goes at this point, but. Nobody else really does yet. It's there. It awaits them. And um, I just wanted to, uh, again, thank you and thank Josh for uh, making the experience so pleasurable. And Josh, if I could, um, they this is, you know, so far afield from what my day job entails historically. Um, and so you taught me a lot here. Uh, I want to thank you for that. And um, I wonder if I could ask you a little bit about, uh, you mentioned Tisquantum at the right. uh, uh, opening of the talk, okay? He's a very important kind of figure who surfaces in our kind of early national origin story um, in a very distorted kind of way. I feel like I still have, in many ways, the kind of kindergarten uh, Thanksgiving mythology backstory to Tisquantum. And then you come in with your talk and you tell me, he just sounds like the most marvelously cosmopolitan figure in colonial North America. I mean, he spoke the language. He was rooted in the native communities in Northeastern United, what becomes the Northeastern United States. Um, uh, he spent time in London, so he speaks the language of the English settler colonizers as well. Very and fluently. so when he, very fluently, okay, so when he comes back over, this is and this is where you pick up the story. He uh, is able to facilitate this interchange between these two communities, unlike anyone else. So, 
Am I am I out on a limb here in thinking that he just sounds like the most marvelously cosmopolitan person in this time and place? So um, a lot of what I got on Tisquantum comes from my advisor, David Silverman, and his uh, book that he published in 2019 on uh, the origins of Thanksgiving or the real Thanksgiving story called This Land is Their Land. Um, and Tisquantum, he has this interesting history, but he's n- he's actually not the only Indian uh, that's going through this process. I mean, uh, there are multiple uh, accounts of, of like Abenakis being captured by English explorers or uh, whalers or fishermen and being taken back to England and then eventually finding their way back at some point. Um, there's a kind of a humorous story where one of them tricks the captain that he knows where all all this gold is in Maine. And for anyone who's visited Maine, there's lots of trees, but no gold. Um, and they sail into this bay and all of his uh, kinsmen uh, swarm the ship, free him, and then basically capture this ship and are able to take what they want from the Europeans uh, off of it. There's another account of um, the Spanish multiple times, both in Central America and then in the southeastern United States, taking natives from missions and taking them back to Spain, training them uh, in the Spanish language and training them to be basically Catholic missionaries and bringing them back. And the natives would retain so much of this indigeneity, they would basically hold on to who they knew they were. And they would take the information they gain while in Spain. So like how many Europeans there are, um, what kind of technology do they have? What do they want? And they would bring that back to um, their people. So there's an instance, uh, the Spanish had a, I forget exactly where, what the name of it was, but there was a mission in Virginia that they had set up and they took uh, a native, took him to Spain, trained him in the language. He came back and um, informed his tribe of what the Spanish were doing, what they wanted. And now a couple of years later, some Spaniards come by and they find this tribe that can somewhat speak Spanish and communicate with them. And the interesting thing is they're wearing black Jesuit robes, uh, suggesting that the last Jesuits who visited um, met a similar fate. So uh, Tisquantum is interesting, but he's far from the only one who um, is having this experience at this time. Is uh, the, do we know more about him than those other figures because there's 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 more records that have survived um, or or is it just because or or he was an anglophone an English speaker as opposed to a Spanish speaker and that's the that's the primary language which American history gets written. Well, I would say for sure there are more records probably relating to um, the Puritans in New England and the Plymouth Company than there are to um, to other uh, colonies that came up in North America. But I think a lot of why we know more about him is, is actually the popularity, because for so long, this sort of uh, founding myth in the Pilgrims has been woven into our identity as Americans. People pay more attention to it. It's why we know more about the Revolutionary War than, say, like uh, the Seven Years War or the War of Jenkins' Ear. It's not that the information is not there. It's just most people aren't reading it because um, it hasn't been popularized. I mean, like you said, you hear about uh, Squantum or Squanto from the time you're in first grade up until you graduate high school. So the majority Majority of people out there are going to have heard of him, but they might not hear about these um, other natives that had the similar experience or the uh, four and a half million natives that went to Europe as slaves uh, prior to 1619, 1620s, or the breadth of it up till the 1800s. Um, it's comparable to the transatlantic slave trade, but uh, we don't really talk about that because it's not popularized in the narrative that we give in when we educate. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not. I mean, like you said, I only ever knew him as Squanto until I guess till graduate school was the first time that I uh, Squanto sounds like an anglicization of right of of the yeah. quantum yeah um and 
Did he, does, is it true that he facilitates the first Thanksgiving? I mean, is there any accuracy to that or is it all just, you know, kind of useful fiction of a sort for kindergartner, you know, so, socialization into American national mythology? <laughs> so Disquantum, um, he absolutely does facilitate this early alliance. Uh, the first Thanksgiving that we think of um, isn't exactly the way it's portrayed in pageantry, of course, but it does happen. It's more of an alliance feast between um, pilgrims and the Wampanoags. Uh, the Wampanoags are desperately trying to secure this alliance because they've been devastated by this, by these epidemics that have swept up and down the East Coast. The Narragansetts are growing in power and they're starting to um, go after local tribes who have suffered more from disease than they have. So Squanto and Massasoit, when they approach the pilgrims in this thing that we uh, now call Thanksgiving, um, was establishing an alliance to secure his people's survival because Squanto originally came from the village of Patuxet, which wasn't there when he came back. So he's in this new place acting as a liaison because of the skills that he's gotten. Um, so yeah, he does have a big role in, a, in that early alliance, but it's absolutely not the way we teach it. Which doesn't certainly doesn't surprise me. What do you say, Madam Chair? Well, I was really interested in um, learning more about the scientific evidence that you mentioned in your lecture. Um, for those of us um, who don't work on your period, um, some of these um, bodies of evidence, no pun intended, might be uh, new. So can you talk more about, um, for instance, you, you mentioned osteoforensics and how scientists are seeing what types of diseases were um, here. Right. Like you mentioned, this new body of evidence, and I absolutely intend the pun, um, it, it comes from a combination of interdisciplinary studies. So uh, Native history in the 1970s, when it sort of broke off as part of this new left uh, history in American uh, studies, uh, it was really relegated to uh, textual records. Uh, meanwhile, anthropologists, archaeologists had been doing this kind of work for years, but they didn't have the historical context. So it didn't have, it had a large body of data, but not exactly the direction that history tends to give things. Um, so Really starting in like the 90s and now really taking speed in the early 2000s and today, it's almost essential to studying things uh, pre-contact. Uh, we look at things like uh, these anthropologic and archaeologic studies, looking at bone densities, looking at things that's going into um, what someone might have eaten, the conditions they lived in, what was their nourishment like, what were the conditions like when they lived. And a lot of this stuff kind of winds up in the bones. So archaeologists, and this is way beyond me, uh, I, I can read what they wrote. I can't reproduce the studies, um, which is why this is uh, kind of neat that we've actually branched out. Um, but they, they've compiled a lot of this data and we've been able to determine certain things like population uh, numbers due to a uh, shift in agriculture, like maize-based agriculture, something huge that changed um, prior to contact. Uh, we think of corn as being the staple crop throughout all of North and Central America. But once it became that, it led to this uh, nutritional deficit, uh, like I mentioned. And a lot of these studies note this, especially from Mississippian mounds. So um, these Mississippian mound cities were large communities. Uh, they would largely be subsisting on agriculture as opposed to hunting and gathering. And well, what happened is they would basically be eating corn while they traded away all of the luxury goods like meats and things that they might find or otherwise harvest. So they create sort of this singular diet that leaves a lot of room for things like disease to grow. And that's um, what some have noticed. There's a disease that's uh, very similar to syphilis, but it's not uh, venereally contracted that 
spreads uh, very commonly throughout these societies. Nothing like zoonotic diseases, so diseases that are passed between humans and animals that Europeans are getting, but really these um, early population centers are breeding grounds for disease. But we don't usually think about that because the narrative that we have been told is one where Europeans brought the disease. Um, the difference is what kinds of diseases. And that's something that um, we try to use these studies to bring out is that uh, to make this picture seem more human uh, rather than something that's protracted as something like Europeans arrived, therefore Indians were doomed to disappear. And that's absolutely not the case. Well, I, you know, I think that's great because I believe in the value of interdisciplinary work. And um, so wondering if you feel that in your subspecialty or your field of history, if it's more open to interdisciplinarity and do you have conferences, you know, where you talk to anthropologists and archaeologists and um I'm wondering if it's just more open to that or more necessary to work between fields and disciplines. Absolutely. Um, when you deal with Native history, you're dealing with a smaller body of sources than you would in, uh, say, just regular uh, European history. Uh, there's no written records outside of those produced by Europeans. So to get the other side of the story that isn't biased by Europeans trying to justify why they took Native land, um, we have to look at a whole bunch of different sources, try to understand the context, try to understand what was going on that led to this happening. So anthropology and history sort of married together very early on in something called ethnohistory. Um, that is that still it still remains the uh, one of the central parts of this field, um, combining both these uh, cultural and human studies with the records that we can find. And. Again, largely this is just due to the fact that there are far more records for other types of history than ours. So we have to be more open to interdisciplinary studies to kind of create a picture of something that a lot of people would say that you can't. But uh, these uh, similar things like what I mentioned in the lecture are proving that you absolutely can reconstruct these stories. Um, the, you raised this question. I, I had written down in my notes, so I wanted to ask you about this, this transition to, you said, maize-centered agriculture uh, as facilitating, I guess, it was is, is that away from like hunter-gatherer modes of subsistence and the like like that? Or is it um, an innovation that's that's building on something else? So maize is huge. The agricultural revolution that occurs in uh, the Western Hemisphere to maize allows for a massive population boom prior to contact. Uh, prior to this, yes, there were many hunter-gatherer groups. There were agriculturalist societies, um, to be sure, but they weren't as efficient pre, uh, before maize. Uh, maize and later it's uh, the cult of our corn becomes central to indigenous life. And you may have heard of like from the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois. Um, the three sisters, corns, beans, squash, they can each grow together in the same plot of land, nourish the ground at the same time as each one uh, dies off or adds some nutrient into the ground, takes another nutrient. Um, these modes of agriculture allow natives to form population centers. And this is really important uh, when you consider disease as well, because now you're not talking about small bands of natives traveling around after a food source like deer or bison or, um, what, or what have you. But now you have large groups of natives, which largely are in one population center or move between one to two, depending on the seasons. Uh, so in the summer, you might have, especially along the East Coast, you might have natives living more um, more uh, to, towards the coast on the summer when fishing and all that's better. And then moving more inland towards where they have food stores 
uh, in the winter or back and forth, depending on the track. So, yeah, you you had uh, thank you for for bringing in that connection to urbanization and increased urbanization in um, in these pre-contact spaces, because I the the connection you describe between on the one hand, urban expansion being facilitated by this progression in agricultural production, even as it diminishes the nutritional quality of the diet most of these city dwellers, I guess, right, we would call them, uh, uh, have access to, which seems so counterintuitive to me. I mean, you would think that populations would be able to thrive in greater numbers with a stronger nutritional foundation. But you're talking about something that 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 indicates the opposite. Well, it's not too far out there. If you look at Europe, most of the peasantry wasn't eating um, large feasts of varying different foods. They were largely subsisting on cereal grains and small plot vegetables that they could grow or uh, or obtain. But when you compare that to what natives are doing, things like furs, pelts and the meats that uh, provided the pelts are trade goods. You trade them away to another tribe or another uh, people to secure an alliance, to end a war, to cover a debt, to cover a death. And when you're doing that, you're basically tasting, taking the best that you have and giving it to someone else. And then when the best of that, of what they have comes in, that largely stays at the top. Now, these societies that form these large agricultural bases, so places like Cahokia and Chaco Canyon, they're stratified. And not necessarily in the same way European society might be stratified. You know, you don't have the the peasantry, the clergy, the knights, the lord. You don't have the feudal structure. But what you do have are people like uh, the chief and his family. You have uh, shamans and other people who uh, interact with the spiritual world. And they're going to take a larger um, degree of these sort of better uh, better things coming into the city or town. These might be described as larger towns. Um, but when they come in, they're largely going to these people because these are the people who are seen to need those things the most, as opposed to the vast number of people who are living there who can subsist off of cornmeal, who can subsist off of maybe occasional meat coming in. Um, but it really just depends on what your role in society was to how much access you would have to these things. And as in Europe, most natives would not be in the um, category that might have better access to more uh, diversity in their food. And you, uh, the the idea of agriculture, the concept of agriculture brings in the soil and the soil, uh, you talk about that quite a bit, bringing in the work of Crosby that you kind of familiarize us with a little bit um, with respect to this terminology, virgin soil epidemics. Uh, that's a concept uh, introduced by Alfred Crosby and... Um, and then you kind of walk us historiographically a little bit to all, all by, by the time that we get to kind of uh, the book, right? The the Jared Diamond volume, Guns, Germs, and Steel, which you quibble a bit with in, in your talk, which I appreciated as well. And um, uh, is, is Diamond just kind of distilling a very simplified version of Crosby down into some kind of trade paperback? Well, 
I would say Crosby. I mean, not sorry, not Crosby. I would say that Diamond is taking Crosby and taking it out of historical context. Uh, Diamond's book is largely trying to explain things by uh, geographic origins. So, in other words, some places are more geographically blessed, so you can win the birth lottery and be born in one of these places and have a better shot at life than other places. So, Europe was geographically blessed to have all these different resistances through hardship uh, to things like disease and poor nutrition, so that when they arrived in the Western Hemisphere, they were better off than natives who had no resistance to these diseases. Diamond simplifies it down to this resistance, no resistance thing, which doesn't uh, accurately explain the demographic collapse, because you can have massive numbers of death from disease without a civilization collapsing. Europe's a great example. The Black Death kills nearly um, a third of Europe's population, but uh, last I checked, Europe is still there. Um, the difference is colonialism, and this is what Diamond misses and what um, a lot of historians have critiqued him on, and I am one of many voices uh, adding to this chorus, but things in col within colonialism are contributing to uh, native population collapse. So in other words, like Europeans aren't just leaving natives alone once they realize they're catching their, these, these diseases. They're continuing contact for trade to try to get to, and the Spanish particularly for gold, um, the French and English later for furs mainly. Um, they're also looking for captives. They're looking for slaves to take back the Spanish and um, Portuguese to work in the in native uh, to work natives in mines. Uh, New France is contributing in this uh, native captive trade, where they're sort of forced to be this facilitator between native groups, uh, passing captives from one place to another, and even taking some of their own uh, to avoid uh, insulting other native nations that are trying to give them captives as a uh, form of a securing an alliance. Uh, and the English themselves, too, as we mentioned with Squantum earlier, are taking people from the coast and taking them elsewhere. So when you have the sustained contact, especially through enslavement, as Andres Resendez has noted in his work, The Other Slavery, um, this is keeping up the pressure of disease. There's constant, uh, constant reinfection, constant contact to further that infection. And then it doesn't allow native populations time to recover. So if natives were able to cut themselves off, if they were able to separate themselves out uh, there's a really good chance that population can recover because virgin soil epidemics, the way they work is when they go in, um, the entire population can fall ill at once. And when that happens, there's no one to take care of the sick. There's no one to perform the duties necessary of gathering food, uh, making fires, doing anything that's absolutely necessary for the tribe. So, but given time, there are survivors. Uh, Natives would leave a place completely. They would quarantine themselves or flee a village that was infected, go into the hills, wait for it to be done, and then come back. So given enough time, these populations might have recovered. But things like uh, colonization meant that they never got that chance. Josh, can I follow up on that? Um, I thought it was an interesting point in your lecture when you liken um, the current situation. You, you use virgin soil epidemics to perhaps describe what the globe is going through at this moment. I think listeners would be very interested in hearing how you're making those connections. I'll excuse myself now for not being an epidemiologist, but um, absolutely. One of the first things that we talked about when COVID hit was this idea of flattening the curve. Now, COVID-19, no one had uh, latent resistance to it. So this, is, this isn't like the chicken pox. You can't get it as a kid and then be resistant to it later in life. With COVID-19, everyone sort of shared this um, risk factor. I mean, obviously, some populations were affected more than others. But what happened was the idea of flattening the curve was to prevent what caused collapse in Native communities. So the idea that their healthcare resources, as we might call healers and uh, the women in the communities that would take care of the sick, um, 
they collapsed because they too fell ill and they were overwhelmed by the number of sick. And then when we talk about flattening the curve, that's the same thing. We talked about pr uh, protecting our first responders, protecting our essential workers and healthcare providers. And then we also talked about not overwhelming the hospital. So if you had COVID and I had it um, once confirmed by test, twice before the tests were actually good and reliable. Um, both times I was told to stay home because I wasn't at risk. I wasn't someone who needed a ventilator. And that's part of what we did was we determined who did and did not need that treatment to allow our system to um, effectively help those who needed it. Uh, so and a lot of the things match up in terms of uh, comparing virgin soil epidemic. But the difference is our understanding of disease and epidemiology now means we had a much better chance of surviving it as we have. Um, the natives that we also have things like vaccines that we've now developed, even if they're imperfect, uh, which increase our chance of survival much better, not to mention our infrastructure is stronger. Um, but just imagine sort of the chaos that's engulfed the world over the last year, we might look to some uh, communities and uh, lesser, um, less well off places uh, to see how they have suffered, and you might get a better sense of how native communities would suffer. Um, and native and native communities are included in that. Uh, natives and other minority communities have suffered uh, disproportionately to COVID, largely due to not only the uh, inavailability of healthcare, but also things like poverty, uh, these food deserts that occur where people aren't able to get the nutrition they need. Um, and those and those populations have suffered disproportionately under COVID. The disease ecology of vast early America. Actually, you know what? Back it up a second. Could you explain what that means? That that's a very popular hashtag. I mean, it's a it's a it's a heuristic device. It's a historiographic concept. It's become very very prominent in the last what 10, 20 years. What is vast early America? So um, it depends on who's saying the term. Um, early America is really a it's almost a misnomer. You can't really say there's an early America until you get into probably, I'd say, at least the 1770s or 1760s after the Seven Years' War. Um, until then, you have a group of colonies at best, and those are dwarfed by the size of the native nations that um, are in the interior of the continent. So uh, you figure up until around the 1720s, colonization in North America only went as far as the fall line on the East Coast, which if you imagine places like Great Falls um, in Virginia, or you go or even up in Pennsylvania, place where I'm from, uh, places like Harrisburg, there are these places where rivers become unnavigable because of waterfalls or a sharp increase in rapids or these things. And this is called the fall line. And usually this is where colonization would stop. So you're talking maybe 100 miles into the coast. That's as far as people got for up until the mid 1700s. Um, so when we talk about early America, we're actually talking about a Native America in which Europeans are living on the edges. It only becomes an early America by the time you get into the revolution, by the time you get into the early 19th century, because now um, the United States and uh, other Europeans in the hemisphere have the population numbers. They have they're winning what we might call the demographic game. Um, they're able to there are millions of them versus the hundreds of thousands of natives who are constantly in decline due to warfare and disease at this point. Uh, so these are this is sort of like uh, forecasting ahead here about 100 years past what I was talking about in the lecture. Um, that's where this major shift occurs. And so when we talk about early America, um, that's why historians generally talk, at least at this period, about contact and pre-contact um, in the Western Hemisphere. It's sort of a, a better way to divide it. 
because it doesn't lead into that misnomer that everything was leading to America uh, that we, uh, I think a lot of historians try to push against. And we've talked a lot about this interchange between uh, uh, indigenous native peoples on in the Americas and their interaction with uh, European settler colonizers. Uh, where do uh, both enslaved Africans fit into this uh, relationship, this interchange? Because they're, you know, very present in this story you tell as well. And uh, uh, were, I mean, you, you talk about how, how some of them end up fleeing slavery, the, the condition of enslavement and, 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 and joining the Seminoles being accepted into the Seminole tribe, which I found so fascinating. So uh, could you speak a bit more about the, 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 the role that uh, uh, Africans play in this moment? It's interesting you bring up the, the Seminoles because there's actually a group in the historical record uh, constantly referred to as the Black Seminoles, which are these um, escaped, um, formerly enslaved African communities that sort of congregate all around the edges of the Seminole communities where they sort of live for protection and alliance with the Seminoles. Uh, and no one's really done any good work on it. So it'd be fantastic if someone could one day uh, write on that. But uh, more to your question. Um, Patrick Wolf, the, anthropo the late anthropologist, had said of the United States that it's formulated on a sort of a triangulation of race. So you have white, Indian, and African, and a large and a lot of this is actually facilitated by this early by early disease. So when the Spanish arrive, the, one of the first things they do after they set up their um, population, their uh, trade centers and their um, presidios and uh, missions is they start enslaving natives to work in mines or placing natives on missions and then having this thing called the recomienda, which is uh, required labor by the viceroy or governor of the territory. They're required to come in and either work on hit at uh, his mansion or work or do some public works or something like that. Um, and this creates uh, not only proximity to disease being in a European center, um, it also spreads it back to the native communities when they go back from Recomienda or um, keeps them persistently in contact with it. So what happens are natives are dying off in massive numbers in the 1500s. And the Spanish, without wanting to lose um, profit, what they start doing is importing Africans from West Africa to replace native labor. And what they begin to find out is that Africans, due to their shared immunity with Europeans, so Africa was not undiscovered prior to uh, colonization. Africa was one of the first targets of colonization. You have like Portuguese castles, um, English, Spanish, all, all the main, what we might call colonial nations were setting up in West Africa before they even hit the, uh, the Western hemisphere. So Africans have already had exposure to European diseases and due to trade and due to constant contact, they can resist these illnesses better. So when Africans are imported uh, and enslaved from West Africa, brought to the Western Hemisphere, they survive at much higher rates, both than natives and by European indentures. So we think later about indentured servitude, people signing up to go work in the new, in the uh, quote unquote new world uh, for their, to, for someone to pay for their lodging, to pay for their transport. Um, they would, a lot of them would die due to um, tropical diseases, due to uh, things like yellow fever and malaria, but Africans wouldn't. So enslaved African labor became the preferred labor of Europeans, largely because the and I don't want to boil it down to cold numbers, but that's sort of how they thought the investment paid off better. 
Um, and as horrible as it is, that's sort of the logic of this colonialism is this awful cold calculus of profit that leads to that leads from native enslavement to African enslavement. Yeah, I I thought that w- it was so revealing, you know, just like the, the, the rapacity of this accumulative, acquisitive, abusive instinct and um uh, and behavior and, 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 and choice. Yeah. But also this, the way you talked about, uh, Simon Newman's work, which I hadn't read myself. It's fantastic. You, yeah. I mean, that is so interesting. The way that that greater degree of immunological response contributes to race formation and this, uh, uh, racialized labor system, it, that Newman's work deals with Barbados, but it sounds like that's 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 a, generalizable to other contexts as well. Yeah, so so Newman talks about Barbados as sort of the center of race making, uh, and largely uh, he talks about sort of the value of labor. And this is where I brought a lot of stuff in the lecture from about the uh, indentured servitude versus uh, enslaved labor and the the way Europeans would reason out profits and reason out costs with that. Um, and then largely Barbados becomes so successful that this language gets imported elsewhere. And then also people from Barbados, so indentured servants who uh, had their what we might call quit rents paid or their quit payments. So in other words, if they wrote out the term of their contract, they would be have to be given a certain amount of money, land, and their the people who had for, for, uh, formerly employed them would have to basically secure them for the future. And Barbados is not large. Um, it, they ran out of land very quickly. So a lot of these people who had uh, this who had run out their contracts leave Barbados, and when they go, they take these ideas with them. They take these ideas of this racial hierarchy, of these sort of pseudo scientific um, racial logic with them, and then we see that imported to places all throughout the Caribbean, and then we see it imported to the southeast. Now, this is a um, extreme compression of an entire field of literature. But eventually, this language leads from ideas of Africans are suited for labor, and then it leads into this idea that why. And Europeans answer that through religion first, through Christianity, this idea of the curse of Ham uh, and all this other um, log- and all this other what they might call logic. And it leads into a system of and eventually leads to a system of racialized labor that you see emerging in by at least by the end of the 1600s and then gaining a lot of speed in the 17 and then then becoming this system of antebellum chattel slavery. That is sort of everyone's picture of slavery uh, by the time you get into the early 1800s. Well, Josh, I was wondering if we can talk more about a theme that will come up in several different lectures in this um, podcast series, but that's the intersection between medical and maybe we can call it scientific aspects of disease and how that um, intersects with cultural beliefs or cultural practices in different places. So, um in the way that the COVID-19 epidemic or pandemic has been um, dealt with in different societies around the globe. So maybe if you have a society that's more prone to listen to um, instructions from their government, they happen to become, uh, or they happen to be able to address the exigencies of the covid spread um, in ways that are better than other societies who are less open to that or yes, less used to using things like masks. So I'm just wondering if you could connect the current moment with um, the period that you're studying and talking about in your lecture. 
Sure. So the period I'm looking at at around contact and a little bit after, um, to put it bluntly, no one knew what was going on. No one fully understood what was happening. I mean, Europeans and natives and Africans all understood the basic principle of, oh, if someone's sick and I'm near them, I'm going to get sick too. Um, they at least understood that, which is why you do see forms of quarantine practiced between each of these different groups. Now, compared to today, there's a bit of a difference. We've observed microbes. We've observed um, the way viruses and bacteria work. Uh, so we can understand at least that these are organisms and that they cause this illness and that these things are symptoms and you can treat the symptoms and you can sometimes uh, treat the illness. However, back then it was this sort of mystery. Uh, and today, if we look at cultures that may not um, lean more towards the scientific side, uh, you still see uh, some similar ideas of this idea of like a curse of God or a curse of a spirit um, or something where you need to remedy that first. You need to remedy that disconnection between yourself and the spirit world. And you see this primarily with natives um, in Africa and to a degree Europeans. Um, so on that note, uh, Europeans believed in a lot in many cases that illness is the wrath of God. Um, this idea that God's wrath could be poured out on non-believers, could be poured out on the undeserving, um, and it would take the form of disease. Uh, natives would also believe something similar. They believe that sometimes if a certain spirit was angry, a spirit or God was angry, they might send disease. Now, um, depending on which spirit sent the disease, you would have to do something different to maybe get rid of it. So some required purification rituals, others uh, required certain sacrifices. Whether or not this worked, um, either in European cases or in native cases, um, it, it's sort of a 50-50. It, often if it worked, it was probably the result of some other mitigating factor rather than those um, things that they might do to appease the spiritual world. But the point was it did raise morale. It raised this sort of idea that, okay, we're doing something to help ourselves. We're doing something to uh, change the circumstances we're living in. So in many cases, um, spiritual cures or pursuing sort of these more what we might call holistic treatments um, does more for mentality than it does for physical uh, for the physical side. Also, Native and African cures compared to European cures focused on making the person feel better at least. Um, so helping to cut fever, helping to cut pain. Meanwhile, Europeans are cutting themselves. They're, they're drinking diuretics. They're, they're drinking mercury and, um, various other things that we've now decided will kill you in large amounts. Um, so comparatively, uh, if it were me, I would much rather have a native or African treatment than a European treatment any day, uh, largely because trepanning doesn't sound like a good way to cure uh, the common cold to me. Wow, that is some really interesting context you just gave us there. So thank you for that. And I have um, two sort of personal questions that um, uh, round out my my set of of inquiries for this chat we're having. But before I get that, I do have kind of a harder ball or you know heavy duty. Uh, question that this is the same one of the most I'll, I'll I'll give a little segue here okay so one of the most fantastic history lectures now I've been you know in this business a little while now I'm not I'm not so young anymore and uh uh but one of the most fantastic absolutely just listening experiences if hearing a historian talk about the past and talk about their work was a workshop that I did about eight years ago in Rhode Island or Colin Calloway came. So Native American, the great Native American historian at Dartmouth. Um, 
Oh my goodness. I could just, Professor Calloway, if you're listening, you have standing invitation to join us on the podcast anytime you like. Um, uh, so I am going to ask you a question that the same question that I asked him, um, uh, which, uh, was the, you know, the question of genocide, um, how useful, uh, yeah, so not a light subject. Um, how, uh, the way I put it to him at the time was, um, Genocide is is uh, and this has come up a couple of t- other times. I teach a course on on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which literally comes into the the General Assembly promulgates the Genocide Convention the same day that the UDHR is adopted. They're very the they're they're very intertwined concepts, uh, and um, uh, but I think of them as very twentieth century concepts. So the the historian in me was. Always a little reluctant to apply that uh, framework of analysis for events that happened centuries earlier, uh, and so we had a, a wonderful discussion with Colin Calloway about that. And I was wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about uh, if it's if it's a useful way to to analyze what occurred. Right. Well, if you get Colin on the podcast, you need to invite me back because I need to uh, be here to speak with that man as well. (laughs) Um, Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I love his work. Um, In terms of your question on genocide, it it is tough because um, there's this tendency to when you say something is or isn't genocide, it tends to become highly politicized no matter what your answer is. Um, So I, I think a lot of people are reluctant to either use the word or to or overuse the word in some cases. Um, what we're looking at here in pre-contact, we're looking at pre-contact and immediately after contact. Um, when you look at genocide, one of the things you have to look at is, is it intentional? Was there an intentional depopulation? Was there an intentional, um, attempt made to destroy all natives? And that wasn't the case. I don't think you can say that's the case in every instance that we're looking at here, because in a lot of cases, Europeans didn't really understand what was going on. They didn't understand that they were bringing diseases. They didn't understand that they were doing these things. That doesn't mean they're not responsible. They absolutely are because they took advantage of the situation they created. However, I think if we're talking about genocide at this level, we need to start looking at smaller cases. So did Europeans wipe out a particular tribe after it had been affected by disease simply because they realized they could? That might be considered genocide. Did they enslave an entire tribe or otherwise remove them from their from where they lived uh, to be reeducated? Uh, will we consider that a form of cultural genocide? Yes, we could. But I think at this level, we need to look at it on a case by case basis rather than later. I mean, Benjamin Madley has made the uh, a really good argument based off of the um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights that if you look at uh, the I think it's the Yuki Indians in the 19, uh, sorry, not the 19th, the 19th century uh, in the 1840s up through the 1860s. He, he has, I would say, definitively proven that there was a case of genocide in California against these natives by going into this very specifically. So I think genocide is a word we have to use very carefully. And I know this period has often been characterized as a sort of term of uh, the American genocide. The fact that you have um, between uh 1492 and 1900, the native population drops from around a high estimate of 50 million to uh, around 6 million total. Um, Those numbers are significant. Uh, And I I can see why it's enticing to call that genocide. But sometimes population collapse doesn't happen because someone set out to do it. 
Um, again, this is why I think that if we're going to talk about genocide, we need to be very precise in our language. We need to be very precise about what we're speaking of. So um, if we might consider uh, the Pueblo revolts and some of these communities that had happened prior to disease, uh, prior to the revolt, that the Spanish had displaced them, put them on missions and essentially tried to turn them into second class Spaniards. Um, we might be able to talk about cultural genocide there. But to speak of it broadly, um, genocide doesn't lend itself towards broad usage. Um, and, I, and especially in our field, that's been a debate lately uh, between uh, several different factions of Native historians of how to best apply it. And I tend to lean on the side of let's qualify it before we use the term, not because I have any political leaning on not using the term, but because I don't want the term to lose its meaning. I don't want it to lose its impact when we do invoke it, when we do it's, invoke that it's idea. It's like descriptive power, right? Um, right. If you, it's like saying a word so many times that it loses its meaning. So if we're talking about genocide, let's be clear that it is genocide before we use the word. Otherwise, well, and, it'll become a meaningless. And precision is a is a is a, is a great you know historical practice to have. Really, you know, irrespective of whatever you're writing about, but you know, perhaps especially in with respect to this kind of content. And my last, my very final question is a little bit on the lighter side, um, particularly you know following upon that one. But I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about. I mean, how did you get interested in Native American history in this period and uh, because the the history of of disease and disease ecologies is so uh, present in the story that gets told uh, in in the vast early America moment, uh, uh, how has living through the this this has how has your experience of the pandemic kind of uh, uh, shaped the work that you're doing right now or reshaped the work that you're doing right now? So sort of how I got into doing all of this, um, it was an under, I took an undergrad class on native history and I thought it was interesting and I got so sucked into it. It became my life ever since then. So 2016 is when my professional life began. Um, and the, one of the first things you learn about is the role of disease, the prevalence of it. And the fact that these things that we can't see unless they're under a microscope basically dictated how life went for the better part of three to 400 years. Um, so that's always been there. The idea of, well, how did disease affect this community? What role does, did an epidemic play uh, in dispossessing this group of natives? Because a lot of my work has been done in native dispossession and sovereignty. Um, so, of course, we look at things like disease. Uh, specifically, I look in the I look at the um, sort of post-American revolution right now. I'm doing research on the Haudenosaunee's or Six Nations Iroquois uh, after the American Revolution um, and the, how they're expressing sovereignty in that period. And a lot of that is influenced, too, by some of these big epidemics. Like there's a smallpox epidemic that Elizabeth Fenn writes about uh, from the 1777 to about 1781, 82. Um, that completely devastates the Iroquois communities. So they lose so many um, chiefs, actually, at one point. They have to dissolve the Confederacy temporarily to allow their nations to survive. And then they come back together, of course, uh, years later. Um, and sort of how this is all wound up in my mind, it, it kind of sticks with me every day when I think about things like that. Uh, when the when, the, when COVID first hit, I was I found myself driving around uh, just these deserted streets uh, where everyone was inside. Of course, I was uh, I had probably the best shot in my you know my family of not contracting the disease, so I was the one going to get groceries. I was the one going to do this stuff uh, to protect everybody else. And I was thinking like, wow, uh, this is illustrating everything I've been taught up to this point. Um, 
it it was one of the first things I thought about on one of these sort of like foggy morning drives uh, where I live going to the grocery store. And ever since then, it's sort of um, it's sort of been impacting on my mind the fact that disease isn't just an instance. It's not just something that happens once it's over. Everyone's OK. And then life goes back to normal. In a lot of cases, when you have a new disease, when you have something like covid that we're not sure what's going to happen, we're not sure if it's going to be gone forever if, or if it's going to be something kind of there like um like like any other disease that we might have um so it's sort of this uncertainty this idea that life is going to go back to a form of normal but it's not going to be the same normal it's not going to we don't know what that world's going to look like and i think that uncertainty has really been what's wound its way into my work understanding that this is what's going on in the head spaces of these people who i'm reading their accounts from of the communities that i'm looking at and trying to understand best and also um I do have contact with uh, Native communities. I mean, it's been a while because of grad school and COVID, but um, it made me think back. I went in 2017. I visited Tuscarora in uh, outside of Lewiston, New York, and I went there to talk to them about the, their experiences in the past, sort of their, get their side of history and for a senior thesis that I was doing. And looking back, I, you can absolutely see how these sort of health concerns make their way into the present. So one of the things that they talk about is having like good health and a good mind. This has become central. This has been central to their people for a very long time. But especially today, dealing with this, the fact that Native communities suffer disproportionately and the fact that when they suffer, they stand to lose languages, cultures, knowledge keepers. This is something that is present in their minds today and would have been present on their minds in the period when these other diseases occurred. So having lived through COVID, it gives this sort of sense that um, you can better understand how people are coping and also how they're suffering. And that gives a lot of good human perspective to what you're doing. Yeah, and it, it strikes me as being presentistic in the best sense of the word, right? So, I mean, the, the words that you open the lecture with where you say, at the mercy of pathogens they could not see, did not understand, and could do little to resist, uh, resonated so much with me listening to it and to so much of, of you know, what what we all had to deal with in the last year mm -hmm. um, uh, through the long 2020, as it were. Uh, the long durée of yeah, 2020. Yeah, yeah. Madam Chair, I never wrap these up when you're here without asking permission first. So I want to invite you to close us out. Well, if you um, are going to mention Josh's opening, I'll end with the end of your lecture, which I think um, brings up something really important for everyone in our profession. And that's that historians have to encourage um, everyone, the public and colleagues, to really take a very clear-eyed and um, honest look at the past, um, and especially to see how um, the most vulnerable populations have been affected disproportionately by um, diseases throughout um, the histories that we are studying. And, you know, I was thinking about as I was listening to your lecture, that while diseases don't discriminate on the basis of race or class, we certainly see that they affect vulnerable communities um, at a much greater level. So I think you were touching upon that, but I thought maybe we could just close out um, this session just with some thoughts on on how um, the native population especially have been, you know, affected or, you know, how you see the future uh, as we move forward, hopefully to a better place after 2020. Absolutely. Fingers crossed. Um, 
Native communities today, one of the big things that they, I think that across the board they're adopting are being especially careful with their elders. Um, in a lot of cases, elders are the ones that have the primary language knowledge and language revitalization is huge right now among many communities. Um, some like the Wampanoags have resurrected their language, which was previously thought to be lost and have done a wonderful job of um, revitalizing it and putting it into common practice among their people. Um, in a lot of communities, though, uh, this isn't the case. And the people who still know the language are the people who are most at risk from COVID. So Native communities are absolutely being very careful, being very safe, uh, as safe as they can be with the virus. And they'll continue to do that. And this is honestly an extension of what they've been doing since European arrival. This is not new, but it doesn't make it any easier. It doesn't make it any less impactful for them. Um, the The goal is is always to survive and to revive and have this revitalization. Um, going forward, hopefully, what I what I would hope for is to see more. Uh, what's the best word to put it? To see more compassion given to these communities, especially from policymakers, especially from um, people higher up in the government to recognize that they are disproportionately affected and they don't have the resources they need to um, to deal with this disease, to deal with the effects of disease. And obviously this brings up issues of sovereignty. This brings up issues of where do natives stand in relation to the United States. And what I would hope is that at least temporarily, that common human element that we were talking about, that idea of this sort of universal suffering, um, but that some uh, some communities tend to suffer more would prevail. And that at least for the moment, that issue might be set aside to allow for real human decency to come in. And that might even make talks then later on these more on these tougher or more contentious issues um, more fruitful for both parties to have this sort of basis of cooperation coming in. Of course, this is a very idealistic dream. This is something that probably isn't based in too much reality. But um, at this point, after 2020, all we have is hope. And I would like to keep hoping. And, you know, I uh, thank you for 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 ending on that note, because it is an optimistic one. And um, I always feel like, what point is there in doing this work or in writing anything without a bit of, of optimism and an intent and hopefulness for the future. Josh Irvin, I want to thank you so much. Your ability to talk about this stuff in this encyclopedic way and to make it connective for, for Carrie Ann and myself and for everyone listening is just so extraordinary. And I, you're, you're, you're a young, uh, historian. And, uh, I think it means we're, going to have a lot more of this from you to look forward to. So I want to thank you, everyone. Josh Irvin. All right. So thank you for joining us for this week's session with Josh Irvin, Carrie Anya Coda, and myself. Please come back for next week's talks when uh, Shannon Duffy will walk us through smallpox in colonial and revolutionary North America. We'll catch you then.